Yo, Katie, tell them what they're about to listen to. No. Oh. Guys, this is number one of the lockdown edition. These are episodes were recorded during the pandemic, and I'm so excited to release them to you guys to listen. And also, you know, it's been a long time, man. And uh, I feel bad. I feel bad for not being consistent. And um, it's good to know that, you know, you guys have been asking, oh, what's up with the episode? What's happened to the, oh, oh no, is it going? And I'm really happy, man. It's it's, it's really exciting and encouraging to, to know that people are actually listening to this. So I will do my best to keep dropping this episodes time and time again. Uh, happy New Year, by the way. Uh <laughs> 2021 was rough and uh, I hope I hope 2022 is not as rough as 2021 uh, but we're all here um, if you listen to this it means you're alive and kicking and I pray you're in good health and your family and friends are also in good health so this is episode one of the lockdown edition and my guest today is Emmanuel Anyemo Sigwe he is the founder and exec producer of the British Urban Film Festival and also Buff Originals this uh, episode was recorded a few months ago, like about, okay, not few, like quite a long time, like nine months or so. Um, and, um, you know, since then, he's handed over the reins of the British Urban Film Festival to another person. And he's now focusing all his energy and time on the production arm of his empire, which is the Buff Originals, along with his wife, a woman I interviewed a couple of episodes ago called Dr. Claire Anyamo Sigwe. This episode is in two parts, and it's definitely worth it. So, without further ado, here is my interview with Emmanuel Anyamosigwe. Emmanuel is the founding director of the BAFTA Qualifying British Urban Film Festival, BOF, a festival that has hosted over 500 film screenings since inception in 2005, and with corporate sponsorships from all major UK broadcasters since 2013, including Channel 4, Traceplay, BBC Films, and BT. Boff is also a full-service production company and a certified Apple TV aggregator. In 2019, Emmanuel was headhunted to run and manage the London Bureau of Channels Television News, Nigeria's biggest independent 24-hour news channel. And Emmanuel has also produced contents ranging from radio shows such as Meet the Critics and Call of Radio and TV shows such as the 2005 Sky TV show Best from the West. Emmanuel is also a well a sought-after speaker on inclusion of black talent and decision makers in British film and TV. I'm just going to go through a few more achievements. I'm sure Emmanuel's head is blowing up right now, but it has to. He's achieved that much. In June 2015, Emmanuel became one of the founding members of the Picture House Central Cinema in London. In November that year, he became an Icon Recognition Award winner for services to video exhibitions from the Creative Herb mag- magazine. In 2019, Emmanuel was ranked one of five standout inductees in the inaugural Britflix Power 100 list of influential figures in the UK independent film. And in December 2020, Emmanuel was invited to become a BAFTA voting member. Emmanuel also holds an MBE from the Queen. Emmanuel, welcome to the O. I'm sure there's more uh, achievements that you could list. You're trying to to cut me off there. No, I'm joking. Listen, I could go for another two minutes, but this is this is intense. This is intense. Um, You've you've really done well for yourself, sir. And um, no, thank you, and thank thank you for having me. Um, I must say that with with some of those achievements, and I'm sure as we get into this, um, Mm. most people listening will realize that. It's not things that I have actively sought. It's just come as a result of timing. Mm. And timing is everything 
um, in life as well as in film and TV and business in general. So I'm sure as we get into this conversation that timing will play a lot in everything that has happened to me for the best part of two decades now. Yeah, which is very interesting because everything in life has an organic organic um, flow to it. It's almost like you need to prepare yourself and when the opportunity arises, then you, you, you're there to grab it. What I find even interesting about your situation is last year, there was this situation with BAFTA and now you've been invited to become a BAFTA voting member. You know, it's remarkable how things turn and I'm very keen to hear how that all panned out, you know? Yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite a full circle, uh, that chain of events. So yeah. for those that aren't initiated to what happened, um, in 2018, um, I got a shock, a big shock. Um, mm. I found out online that Victor Adiboden, mm. uh, who I considered uh, a peer um, at the top of his game, a uh, black British producer mm. in film and TV, um, mm. was responsible for Venus versus Mars, which was a very successful web series, yeah. which then migrated to TV when it was picked up by Sky Living and acquired, made into a series, mm. which was scheduled alongside Scandal. Um, mm. in prime time so that was massive Victor was the brainchild behind that he was also the brainchild behind a black led production company of which there were not that many called Purple Gecko mm. um, which is mm. a triumvirate of Victor Femi Oyanirin mm. and Babi Isako uh, who's a writer Okay. and they they really literally had a purple patch when it came to recognition notoriety with their TV projects, uh, theatre projects, webisodes, as I've mentioned. Um, But even prior to Purple Gecko, Victor was already kind of streets ahead, um, directing episodes of Coronation Street, um, working in advertising. Um, So he was was very much on his way to doing greater things than what he'd already accomplished um, before his untimely death at 33. Wow. 2018 um so i heard about this online and at first i i didn't believe what i was seeing so the only thing i could do in that moment was to call femi um femi is a is a good friend of mine mm. um whom i've known for over a decade now um, in fact i showed his very first film as a filmmaker called fresh off the boat um <laughs> back in 2010 Okay. That long ago. Um, so I just picked up the phone and just... It was just a very surreal conversation because I didn't even say hello. I just picked up the phone. And the next voice I heard was Femi literally just inconsolable. Um, wow. And he literally said, uh, uh, they found him in the bath. <sighs> and it's like, What? He said it again. They found him in the bath. And then he put the phone down. Um, and that, that to, to my dying day, that will be one of those things that you cannot unhear. Mm. Yeah. 
first you read about it online, people saying that he's died suddenly. Um, no one was sure what the cause of death was. To this day, no one still knows what the cause of death oh, was. Oh, to this day. Um, wow. Obviously, I was trying to find out from people who I knew, who either worked with Victor or been close to him, what happened. This is crazy. Yeah. yeah. I guess from that day on, it was just kind of complete shock that Victor was no longer with us. I remember the last time I saw him, um, I was at a screening of, oh, I can't remember the program now, but it starred Michael Salami and the sister of Sebastian Thiel. Oh. Um, the program will come to me. But that's where I okay. met Victor last, somewhere in West London. And we were reminiscing on Screen Nation um, and Victor being the guy that he is, the same, we've all got to support Screen Nation, mm. you know, because it's not easy in this industry. And to this day, and as you said, it's still not, um, you know, it's still hard to get recognised for your craft. So when yeah. you have a black organisation like Screen Nation doing that precise thing, yeah, we can only but support it. And that was the last conversation I had with Victor. So he passed April 2018. So I guess when I spoke to my wife Claire about it, obviously she was in complete shock. She couldn't believe it. And for hours we just sat there just thinking, what could we do to kind of um, pay tribute to Victor? Um, yeah. How can his memory be celebrated? Um, so we just literally just went into autopilot. Yeah. There was the initial shock, which took about three, four hours to sink in and then we at the time I had just finished uh, my second season producing and presenting the radio show Meet the Critics which you mentioned yeah. in your introduction yeah. um, so in 2017 I was Colourful Radio's first full time film presenter oh. um, courtesy of Kofi Kusito um, who founded Colourful Radio in early 2002 yeah. and who himself um, has been honoured by Her Majesty as well. Okay. So I've been part of Colourful Radio for many years, first as a guest on other presenters' shows, um, and then I guess as my friendship with Kofi grew and his respect for what I was doing in film and TV and media in general kind of grew. It was an organic thing, as you identified, to kind of yeah. get into radio and mm. kind of channel my love of black film into this show called Meet the Critics, where every week for an hour, I would talk with four people about film and black film and kind of various issues. Okay. Um, and having done the second season, when Victor died, the first thing I thought of was, could I speak to Kofi and get back on the air mm. and do a one hour tribute uh, to Victor live? Yeah. Um, and he said, yes, do what you need to do because for everyone, you know, kind of that our community in terms of film, TV, media, it was a, it was a complete shock. It kind of mm. reverberated. Because it was well-known within the circle, very wasn't it? well-known, very popular. Mm. Mm. Um, even when we went to the wake keeping in um, Bounds Green, mm. uh, there was, I kid you not, there was at least a thousand people in the room. Uh, a wow. thousand people. It was incredible. Wow. Obviously, lots of faces that I know from Bath and just from the industry. Yeah. It was just an unbelievable atmosphere. Um, if you were there, you'd think there was a massive celebration. Mm. 
which it was, you know, but then at the same time, um, it, it, I guess people were just still in shock that Victor was not here, was not yeah. there. Yeah. Um, I remember seeing his sister and his family and his wife, Natasha, and, and that's when it hit home, you mm. know, that all these people have lost someone that they love, family. Mm. Um, I know how much Victor means to Femi and also to his collaborator uh, and friend, uh, Nicholas Walker, mm. otherwise known as Slim Ting, mm. um, who they've worked together on many projects, the three of them, Victor, Nicholas and Femi. And yeah. I remember at the wake, they were just keeping themselves busy, just trying to, you know, it's just very, very, very surreal um, as I'm relaying all this back to you. Yeah. I know your question was about BAFTA, and I'm going to come to that, but obviously... <laughs> yeah don't know who Victor is and what he meant to me and to people. I hope that what I'm saying comes across. No, uh, no, definitely. I mean, it's given it a lot of context as well because, um, you know, now, now we're about to find out how and why your reaction to BAFTA was the way it was because BAFTA is a very, very powerful organization. And, mm. and some of the things you said publicly, you know, some people would be afraid to say that. So now we, we can see the fuel behind your your actions so yeah please go on sure so like i said the colorful radio program went out um mm. i believe it was two weeks after victor's death uh mm. so uh, victor passed on april the 12th um the dates i remember very well because uh i think just before i did the radio show I was also a columnist with The Voice newspaper. Mm. Um, and The Voice is an organisation I have a lot of time for. Um, I've worked with them for the best part of 20 years, um, wow. promoting events with other black film organisations mm. like Black Filmmaker Magazine, which is mm. why I kind of started out. Mm. Um, so I'd known The Voice through uh, that association. And then obviously as Buff kind of got into its stride, The Voice was my kind of my go-to outlet to help promote the festival and get it into uh, the ether. So when um, I became their columnist, uh, also in 2018, um, I hadn't written an article yet or a piece. Mm. So when Victor died, it just so happened that that was going to be my first piece in the Voice newspaper. It was, it was a full-page obituary um, to Victor. Yeah. Um, and those that have read it, it was in print and it was also online. Uh, there's a picture of me, Victor and Femi at the BT Tower, mm. uh, which was where uh, Victor and Femi and Nicholas won a Buff Award for Best Film with the intent mm. for which he right. was the executive producer. Um, so that was that picture that was published in the Voice newspaper. And obviously my obituary went into kind of detail about you know, Victor's legacy um, and just the complete shock of it and how I would do everything in my power to make sure that his memory is never forgotten. Mm. Um, so that was published on the 23rd of April. Um, and then I guess life goes on. You carry on with uh, Buff for me and then all the other things that I was doing at the time in 2018, that was also the same year we released our first feature film, No Shade. We'll come on to that later on. Yeah. So it was a very busy, busy year. Um, 
but I just knew that I had done what I said I was going to do mm-hmm. for Victor and his family was to make sure that his memory will always never be forgotten um, because the history of black people in this country, not just in film, but just across the board, is uh, that they're very easily forgotten or overlooked or diminished, either subtly or very obviously. And I just knew that within my power, I would not allow that to happen. So Mm. I was very happy that I could play my part constructively in this way. And coupled with that, I felt that I wasn't taking advantage of this situation. Because with these things, sometimes people will look at you and think, he's doing this for the fame. He's just trying to keep himself out there because of who he is. Yeah, yeah. But Victor meant more to me than that. Um, Mm. And it just so happened, obviously you talk about timing and we talked about timing at the beginning. The Mm. fact that I was at The Voice and I was at Colourful Radio, Mm. I was using that platform to amplify um, someone like Victor. So Mm. it was perfect, you know, um, in terms of how I was able to champion Victor that way. Not just... um, when he passed, but obviously when he was alive through winning the Buff Award. Mm. So obviously Victor meant a lot to me personally and professionally. Yeah. So let's bring it now to 2020. So there's two episodes to this. Okay. The episode which led to the reconciliation, I guess, with BAFTA, that's one Mm. episode. Mm. But there's a middle episode which most people are not aware of. Okay. Which was when... So this is something that I do just as a geek and as someone that is eternally paranoid about mm. life and the industry. I would Google British Urban Film Festival every day just to mm. find out what's being said about us. As, you, sh- as you should, as you should. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm just putting it out there. You should yeah, always yeah. Google to see what's happening. So I, sure. I do that every day. And it was one day in particular, I did it late at night, just before mm. I was going to bed. Um, and then BAFTA came up in the search engine. Now, up to that point, Buff and BAFTA had no reason to be connected in any way whatsoever. I had never sought uh, for BAFTA to support the festival in any way, not mm. for any particular reason, but obviously there was a lot of things said at the time about BAFTA that was concerning in terms of how they weren't recognising talent yeah. um, through their nominations voting procedures, um, Speci- all the things. Um, that, specifically black talent, yeah? Indeed, indeed. Mm. And it's something that um, Steve McQueen um, really put to the fore um, last year. Mm. That being said, like I said, Buff had nothing to do with BAFTA. We weren't seeking him for anything. Um, and then BAFTA's name comes up in the, in the Buff search. I'm thinking, so what's going on? What's going mm. on? Mm. So I, I delve further and then... Lo and behold, I see Victor's name come up. So I'm thinking, Vic, what's what's going on here? What what are they mentioning, wow. And then I read on, and then I'm now taken to the obituary page of the BAFTA website, Ooh. where they literally have Victor Andy Bowden's name, um, him passing away, mm-hmm. and a blurb, a short kind of four or five line blurb. Yeah. And as I'm reading this, it suddenly occurs to me that those are not BAFTA's words. They're mine. Okay. So now I'm thinking, 
no no one's spoken to me about this. This 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 is not right. Is it commonplace? Is it because it's something I put out publicly that then did they, did they call used... to you or because the majority it... of the blurb mm. was what I wrote. So mm. what most people do to get round that is they put one of their own lines sure. somewhere, sure. kind of pass it off as their own. Mm-hmm. And then what the blurb also says was that Victor was the CEO of the British Urban Film Festival. Oh, my. <laughs> what was the context of this post, anyway? What was the context? Were they celebrating, like, black talent so or...? Ba- no, so BAFTA just have an obituaries page. So anyone in film oh. who's passed away, yeah. BAFTA would kind of lord them on their obituary section of their website. Mm-hmm. So... To that point, I had no idea that Victor had an affiliation to BAFTA. Mm. Um, but later on, it turns out that Victor did have an affiliation to BAFTA. And had BAFTA had told me this um, early on in the piece, it wouldn't have got to the levels that it did last summer. Um, so the fact that BAFTA had mentioned Victor, I'm thinking, what have BAFTA and Victor got in common? Mm. Mm. You know, and if they were going to do a piece on Victor, why didn't they use someone in their organisation to write a piece? Why did they have to use my piece? It was jacked your piece pretty much, yeah. Yeah. So mm. at the bottom of the blurb, it literally had a command said, "Read the voice obituary on Victor Adibodin here." Mm. So now it's like open seasons, like the voice. Ob- so that's my obituary, clearly. Obviously, my name was not there. It just said the voice. I'm pretty sure that the voice have not been made aware that this is happening Mm. either. But this is two years before what happened last summer played out. So two years ago. Now that I found out all this information, I then said to my wife, Claire, I'm going to sue BAFTA. And Claire was in two minds about that. She said... King, that's what she calls mm. your your name, your reputation in the industry. Is it really worth taking on BAFTA? Mm. I said, but can you see what they've done? This is not based on opinion. This is fact, factually. Yeah, they've done me over three times. They've not come to me for permission to use this obituary. They've not credited my name, mm. and probably the worst of the lot, they've conflated a dead person with someone mm. who's lived with the Mm. title that gave him. So I I looked into it legally to see whether I had a case. Now, if you know law, you'll know that there's a lot of legalese and there's a lot of things to kind of navigate before you get to the kind of juice and where you think, okay, there's a case there. Mm. Um, And it took me about three or four hours, but I I realised that there was a potential case. Mm. I then sought some proper legal opinion, and it just so happened that the part of London where we live, um, which is in Farringdon, Mm. um, for those that don't know Farringdon, Farringdon is just off King's Cross, and where we are, you've got the world-famous Royal Mail headquarters in Mount Pleasant. Just off of uh, Mount Pleasant, you've got Chancery Lane. Um, And that's where my friend from secondary school... Um, oh. is a solicitor. Okay. So I literally took a 15-minute walk to his office and said to him, look, I've got a situation here. Mm. Um, what can you do? So he looked into it for me, 
and he said he was going to write a letter to BAFTA. I said to him that I want to sue them, mm. and he literally put it to me the same scenario that Claire did. Is that do you really want to put your reputation on the line like this? Um, in the main, you have a case, but it's not like a big, big case. So it's almost as if you know there's there's bigger wars to fight. Yeah. But at the time I was feeling, but if I don't fight this war now, when will I fight a war like this? Because it's not every day you get done over, not just once, but three yeah. times. Hmm. Um, so he said, at the very best, I'll try and get them to at least change the website, take it down, correct it, um, and issue an apology. Hmm. Um, which is what they did two days later after my solicitor friend sent out the letter by email. Okay. So now let's bring it to June last year. Okay. Height of the pandemic. Hmm. Um, 25th of May, George Floyd passes away. Yeah. And then in intervening seven days, literally every man and his dog in terms of white organisations were just jumping on the bandwagon in terms of showing solidarity for black people um, performative um, solidarity as it was coined (laughs) but for me personally um, I wasn't getting involved, when I say getting involved the tendency with being on social media especially in a pandemic is this kind of urge to be part of the discussion to be part yeah. of the conversation yeah. whether you have an association to that subject or not so with all of this going on um, I read an article about this where I picked up the term of this performative solidarity mm. um, and then literally minutes after I read that article I then see a tweet from BAFTA um, on a black screen white text which is what all these companies were doing saying we're showing our solidarity for George Floyd and for black people in general words to that effect now I remember seeing that at the time and I don't easily get ruffled by many Mm. things in life especially having had to bury my mum and dad over 18 months and my younger brother Mm. over the last 15 years so for those who have been unfortunate to bury loved ones, anything after that is a bonus. So mm. for a tweet like BAFTA's to then ruffle me, it would have taken a lot for me to kind of get riled up. And I remember calling Claire. And I think we had a conversation over the weekend. So we were seeing conversations of other celebrities getting kind of... <laughs> kind of drawn in to yeah. the whole George Floyd, this is how it's affected me. The, the, yeah. the, 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 there were a lot of people just kind of pouring their hearts out. Yeah, People that me and Claire knew, just kind of thinking, raw, didn't see that coming. Yeah. But what's George Floyd got to do with you? So I guess for many people, they were having these conversations. This it was like an outlet, it's like an emotional tap that just opened up. <laughs> well, suddenly everyone's kind of not best friend, but just kind of someone that they could relate to. And, yeah. And me kind of thinking, nah, that, that can't be right. And yet, there was some sort of pos- positive action coming off of the back of George Floyd in yeah. film and TV from what I was seeing 
mm-hmm. in later months, or maybe it was as a result of what I then subsequently did in response to the BAFTA tweet. And when I saw the tweet, I called Claire and I said to her, I'm going to call them out. Call who mm-hmm. out, she said. BAFTA. BAFTA have only gone out and put a tweet saying they're showing solidarity for black people. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Claire knew about the experience of BAFTA previously. Yeah. So when I was telling her I was going to call her out, I said, I thought you were done with BAFTA. Why do you need to call them out? I said, I couldn't, I couldn't let that pass, given my experience with BAFTA. Mm. And obviously, this is an experience that wasn't made public. Oh, so the apology wasn't made public. The wasn't obituary, public. everything was public, but the apology to you wasn't. It was, and and did you think it was? Um, did it feel uh, sincere? Did it feel like they made an you know, a bigger effort than they should have. So that that apology was two years ago. Yeah. Um, and obviously my solicitor's friend said to me at the time, that really should be the end of it. Mm. You know, just go mm. on to bigger and better things. Mm. But remember, they done me over three times. So even though there was an apology, they corrected factually some of the changes. Okay. Because obviously they couldn't leave it on there. Mm. But... Obviously, fundamentally, no one publicly knew about this. Mm. Um, Victor's family didn't know about it. You know, his sure. friends didn't know about it. Um, so, you know, all it would have taken at that point was for someone to kind of see that and alert me and say, Emmanuel, do you realise what's going on here? Yeah. Um, yeah. That didn't happen. So that was kind of part of the reason why I was motivated to call out BAFTA, even though they right. had already apologised previously. Mm. For me, it just felt like you've apologised, but yet you're putting out this tweet knowing that you've not shown solidarity for black people. Not just to me, in terms of the respect afforded, but obviously traditionally with what you've done as an organisation up to right. that point. Right. Right. well documented about how they've dealt with black people um, but I guess everyone has got their own stories about BAFTA and I had mine and that's yeah. what I used to call them out um, later that evening on June mm. the 1st putting it out at night meant that obviously when everyone woke up the next day that became a trending topic yeah. um, unbeknownst was, to me this was on Twitter isn't it you put it on Twitter this was on Twitter yeah. well I called them out on Twitter and obviously I didn't uh, put out the receipts as they call it so I had the screen grab of yeah. all the errors that they made people were literally shocked and they realised Emmanuel's not the kind of person to get ruffled you know he's very mm. much his own man he's very narrow minded with Buff and he's always been about Buff and yeah. putting filmmakers first but now he's now become the story because of something that an organisation as big as BAFTA could kind of do yeah so you know over the course of that week the evening standard got in touch okay um this is not public knowledge Mm. um and they wanted they interviewed me Mm. and they were gonna put out a one-page piece about this but unbeknown to me, um, because of George Floyd, David Yellower then came out with a story, oh. um, Ava, about how their protest 
was the reason why Summer wasn't nominated for an Oscar. Ah. But the difference between uh, David's story and mine, obviously David is very high profile. Yeah. Uh, but the evening standard went with David's story. The Academy, Ampas, uh, were not going to put Summer forward because of their protest, because of um, uh, Ghana. Mm. Uh, what's his name? So sorry, I've forgotten his first name. But the guy that said, I can't breathe. This was back in 2015. Mm. And mm. Ava DuVernay and David Yellow had worn these T-shirts showing yeah. solidarity. But it was because of that that the uh, Academy um, decided that they weren't going to give Summer any nominations. So that was David's ire. Um, and obviously it, it, it garnered um, massive publicity. But also it made the Academy put out a tweet saying we recognise uh, what we did. They didn't literally use the words they're sorry, but the fact that they responded to David was the thing because obviously up to that point I'd only received a private apology from BAFTA and a changing of um, the mess that they caused online Yeah. but in my calling out of BAFTA um, I asked them for a public apology not just to me but mm. also to Victor's family so this was the second um, time this was after they put out that tweet this is the second time yeah, yeah. so this is uh, last summer I was asking mm. them for the public apology. In this same week, the new chair of BAFTA was announced, mm. the first person of colour to be BAFTA chair in its whole history, um, mm. Krishnendu Majumda. Mm. So, and then as it turned out, Krish had produced, um, he still is a TV producer, that's his day job, but back in the day, he produced a documentary called Who You Calling an N-Word? Okay. Which was followed by Dark As Hell. Hmm. So obviously I'm kind of still in rage mode thinking, so this is who Bafta have chosen to be the chair and this hmm. is his track record hmm. in George Floyd connecting a lot of people thinking Bafta, they're asking for a death wish, aren't they? You know, like, <laughs> are they not reading the room here? Hmm. Then their TV nominations came out in the same week wasn't quite as diverse as some people were hoping. So yeah. all in all, it was shaping up to be a horrendous week for BAFTA. And this was Chris's first week in the job. Mm. But to his credit, the very first thing he did um, was he emailed me. He reached out to me okay, uh, with a full email just... Obviously, he, was, he had no idea about obviously what had transpired with your mm. obituary so someone in his team had made him know that this is what's happening this is why BAFTA is getting a bit of stick at the moment yeah I didn't see any apology in his first email so I was still consistent that I mm. wanted a public apology because it's only through a public apology that change in my belief would manifest Chris then put out an 8,000 word kind of opening essay just to introduce himself to the world as the new BAFTA chair mm. where he acknowledged BAFTA's mistakes mm. um, and he pretty much said to me in later emails that this was pretty much an apology to cover all the errors Everything. of their ways mm. 
Um, but I, I was not satisfied still. Okay. Um, so I kind of had to find a way to channel this because it was mm. almost becoming like stalemate and I was almost becoming like a man possessed. So bringing it back to Buff, I then obviously had a chat with Claire and we just hashed it out. There's got to be some positive that comes out of this. Okay. I said to Krish, um, well, now that we're in conversation, Buff has to be part of BAFTA in some way. Mm. Um, so at first, Chris invited me to be part of the review okay. and to offer some constructive feedback, criticism, observation about BAFTA. Um, and then I said to Chris, uh, Buff could do with some recognition. Yeah. You know, when it comes to diversity, representation and inclusion, we've been doing it the longest. Yeah. As a black film organisation, no other black film organisation has the track record that Buff has. Um, I would contend that um, not many white organisations have the track record that Buff has. Mm. So on that reason alone, Buff should be acknowledged by BAFTA in some way. Yeah. Um, and it was at that moment that Chris said, "You have you thought about becoming a member of BAFTA? And I said, okay. no. And then he mm. said, well, I think you should, because you can only affect change from the inside. Yeah. So then we then kind of made the case for BAFTA to get BAFTA recognition. Yeah. And obviously they considered it. And mm -hmm. in October, uh, we got recognised as a BAFTA qualifying festival. Good, which I guess for many people was long overdue. Yeah. Um, but yeah. the fact that it took uh, Victor Adi Bowden for that to happen, um, you know, it's all about timing, as we said yeah. at the very beginning. And this was very unfortunate in terms of how it's all turned out. Mm. But at least after in that moment decided to not fuel the fire any further, but just kind of find a way to appease me. Yeah, um, yeah. Which is the best way that I can describe it. But also because they had the film review kind of running parallel to me calling them out, mm. They were literally in change mode. They had to do something in response to what was happening, um, not just in the industry, but obviously mm -hmm. off the back of their own award ceremony where they had people like Sir Steve McQueen, who was one of BAFTA, literally saying that BAFTA would become irrelevant and obsolete. Yeah, if that they was a big statement to me, yeah. yeah. And he doubled down on that. So yeah. if this is what Steve McQueen's telling me, you, you're going to have to listen. You know, there's sure. no... There's no way to kind of get around that. Yeah. Um, so to their credit, you know, here we are. March After qualifying for short films. Nice. Um, I then got an email in December uh -huh. asking me to become a voting member of BAFTA. Nice, nice. Wow, okay. <laughs> and clearly you can see um, the change in tone of BAFTA, mm. the change of approach. Mm -hmm. uh, how they're kind of embracing diversity um, which is obviously long overdue but now the proof of the pudding is in the eating will, will this be the case next year and the year after that is this going to be a one-off thing Yeah. You know, um, but I guess through one of their many changes as a result of the film review where they want to have at least a thousand new members from underrepresented groups in yeah. their voting membership by the end of next year, 
Oh, I nice. don't know how many numbers they've reached at the moment, but obviously, oh. clearly, that will make a significant difference. Um, but obviously, the impacts are starting to be shown now. So they're ahead of schedule in terms of the perception, but with regards to the actual tangible results, there's still a lot more work to be done. But I'd like to feel that Buff being a part of that um, is holding them to the fire. Mm-hmm. And it just means for people looking on the outside, uh, my fellow peers, fellow black organisations, colleagues, filmmakers, creatives, that there is hope for everyone um, that you, if you do have a voice, have to use it to the best of your um, power. And that's what I did last summer. That's interesting, man. I mean, there's there's so many things to unpack from there. And, and one of the reasons why I kind of like let you play it out is because the, the um, two things. One, obviously, Victor... Um, as as um as a f- good friend of yours and also BAFTA for me it was to get deep into the mindset of how and why you approached this conversation with BAFTA the way you did because like you said two mm. years ago some most people would have left it and now and and we could see how it's it's turned a positive direction for the organization buff which I'm gonna delve deep as to why you even started it in the first place but um i've got a few questions i lined up for later but i think it's, this is a perfect time to bring it here now tyler perry obviously you know the famous tyler perry is very well known for saying well why do we need a seat seat at their table and they meaning like hollywood so in this case we can talk about mainstream um, um entertainment in england my main question at this stage is in terms of why do we why do we have very few tables? Why do we like you have buff? You created buff. I mean, you've been going yeah. on for over a decade now, but we have mm-hmm. so many few tables, and not only that, even once the tables are created, they don't last long for different reasons. Mm-hmm. Why mm-hmm. why do you think so? Why don't we have more people like Tyler Perry? I'm not I'm not I'm not even talking just about the UK. I'm talking more like even mm-hmm. international because you have people like yeah. Will Smith, Oprah. Byron Allen, these people have so much resources, but mm. they are unable to come together to create things. You know, now now we hear of new platforms coming out, GB News, and all of this by different people who are not even sure. blood related, but as black people, we struggle with this. I don't know what sure. your thoughts are on 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 why the deficiency. Ah, uh, it's 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 not an easy question to answer because. I know from previous interviews and just from my experience of working at black film organizations, mm. how I personally lament at the lack of a black British infrastructure yeah. of media organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a time where we had three or four black radio stations, Choice FM, um, uh, for newspapers, you had The Voice, you had New Nation mm. uh, magazines, you had Touch magazine, mm. uh, Pride magazine, um, TV channels, you had Ben, OBE, Passion, yeah, Trouble yeah. TV, um, which is crazy because to call a black TV channel Trouble TV, it didn't occur <laughs> to me at the time, but obviously in later years, you kind of think, I see yeah. what you're doing. He had a hook. But, he had uh, a hook. He had a hook. You know, but in 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 the eighties and nineties and <clears throat> the early two thousands, it felt <clears throat> like Black Britain had a solid media representation. Yes, there wasn't that much content being put out, 
mm. or there weren't there certainly weren't enough creatives mm. that were doing stuff um so in answer to your question as to why there were so few tables i guess it's all about perception what you don't see you don't feel that it's possible so like the, um, they're not not enough visionaries or people that would be visionaries were inspired to create these tables exactly so mm. You know, I can't speak for everyone in that moment. I guess where me and Tyler have something in common as kind of outliers mm. is because you're not in the crowd, mm. you have a better view of everything. Ah, so, okay. Okay. So like an outsider's advantage. It's as visual as that. So mm. if you're on the outside kind of looking in, you're not in with the herd or the crowd, I don't see myself as a gatekeeper mm. as much as I thought I was um, in the last few years I'm kind of more of a shepherd mm. um, so when you think of shepherd uh, those that read the bible will mm. know that shepherds play a very influential role yeah. um, in terms of how they look after sheep mm. Mm. and you know sheep have got one thing to do they follow their shepherd yeah. And for me, how I see Buff is that role of being a shepherd where I'm leading the flock. Now, sure. obviously, the majority of the flock are black people, but the reason why Buff has continued to sustain itself is that flock has not only included black people, it's included people in general that have felt marginalised, mm. that felt voiceless, that have felt misrepresented, that have felt underrepresented. So the fact that Buff can be this safe space to mm. all these types of people mm. means that a table that I've created has now become a bigger table that has meant so much to so many people. Um, and the reason why there were fewer people thinking like that is just literally a personal capacity to lead people that feel lost but it's a sad thing, isn't it? Because like, if 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 it's two, because two things I'm I'm taking away from 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 your response is one, you have just just this mentorship, you know, like the fact that you can't see people who have gone ahead of you to create things, and you you feel you're incapable of it, pretty much. Because if a would be visionary, if someone who's got the propensity to to create amazing things, like an establishment to propagate like black content or any content, right? And they can't see mm. someone like them doing it, then all, all of a sudden they lost hope. They're not thinking of that dimension. And then on top of that, that people are not, if, if this person is not personally equipped, it's not in their DNA, it's not in their background, it's not, because obviously, again, it's one of the things I was, I was gonna ask you is how do you think the part, the path you've taken is influenced by your genetics, is influenced by your background, being, you know, Nigerian and everything that you've gone through in life. So it's almost like, it's it's like you need very, very special people to create tables from our community. And compared to other communities, it's not the case because the infra infrastructure is there, the, the support system is there. You don't need to be a, a visionary or some genius to create anything or someone with to go through so much pressure and, and challenges because you've yeah. gone through a lot to keep buff existing. But would a sure. fellow white person go through what you went through 
to keep their festival. It's a great, it's a great observation you you're making here, Okay, It's a great observation because it's something that literally what you're talking about mm. was something spiritually that occurred to me last summer during the pandemic mm. where mm. I wasn't necessarily questioning Buff, but I was more questioning myself. You know, mm. who am I? Mm. You know, what is my legacy in the world? What am I bringing to the table that really yeah. put Buff aside? What am I bringing? Why should people care? Mm. So in that moment, I literally answered the question, so who am I? I'm Emmanuel Anyamusigwe. Who mm. is Anyamusigwe? Mm. Anyamusigwe, my family in Nigeria, is one of the most famous families in Nigeria. Mm. Uh, and it's always been repeated to me just how uh, popular, uh, influential, powerful that we are. Yeah. So that was something that I was channeling into last summer. Um, obviously, you think about it all the time, but when life takes over, you forget where you actually come from. Mm. Um, so in, in answer to kind of your question and kind of the observation that you make, environment is everything in terms mm. of why Buff is continuing to do what it's doing. Um, and I've been very fortunate um which is surreal to hear that from a black person because most mm. black people are not fortunate. White people have unfair advantages in terms of upbringing, class, money, connections. Mm. But so do black people. Okay. But why, is it, why isn't that being talked about? You know, black people can have um, class, money, uh, family connections. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what I have. Mm. So when you think about the animal sequel, I actually have this. Do you know, am I using it to my advantage? Why, why, why does it seem to be unfair as a black person to have advantages when I actually have advantages? Yeah, but I'm not using them. Whereas white people use their advantages all the time, and then black people thinking, well, why can't I be like a Zuckerberg or why can't I be like a Peter Thiel or whoever mm. the next big um, a Dorsey or yeah, exactly. Plain devil's advocate, you, you will hear from black people in general, especially, you know, if you, if you look at Africans, we tend to say we don't get the support that we need from our family. We don't get the support we need from our community, mm. you know, and all that. And, and, and that could be another thing because, yeah, we could say we have these things, we have all the support, but do we actually get it when we need, when we need it? You know, like you, again, a quick segue into what you said about buff opening up to a wider audience because I'm assuming when you started Buff it was more about okay this is for this is to help black filmmakers uh, ethnic minorities but now it's yes. opened up to even a wider array of people yes. who've been you know so is it that you didn't get enough support from the black community as filmmakers and just financiers and the rest of it and then all of a sudden organically it opened up because the, the love you were getting was so that's that's another thing as well. Do we really? That's interesting. Do, do you know what I mean? Um, yeah. So in answer to that direct question, um, the reason why I opened it up was, I guess, more of a marketing thing. So coming up mm. with the name of Buff, you know, Urban. Mm. Again, at the time in the nineties, um, I mentioned Trouble TV, sure. um, and Channel U was another company run by 
white people, but their music yeah. was black music. Yeah. Um, and so there were people that were aware that, um, you know, there's cultural appropriation going on here. Mm-hmm. Um, what can be done about it other than rage and anger? Like, <laughs> how dare these people? How dare? Uh, rage and anger. It's interesting. As a black person, to now have that kind of um, tag, mm. Urban Film Festival, mm. um, I was very conscious that it wasn't going to be just a black film festival. So from right, day okay. one, okay, the, the objective was to open it up. Okay. So okay. when people ask me what is an urban film, it's surely a black film. Mm. And my stock answer then, as it is now, is it's whatever you perceive the word urban to be. Mm. Because part of the problem with labeling and branding and just things like that in life is once it sticks, it sticks. Yeah, yeah. You know, but yeah. that's not the sum of your parts. True. You know, true. Black people are not urban people. Yeah, of course not. Yeah. We're not monoliths. Urban people, anyway, you know. <laughs> uh, but in the context of urban film, having a concept like a British urban film festival mm-hmm. in two thousand and five, when diversity wasn't the buzzword that it is now, yeah, people back then were thinking this is just another way to say it's a black film festival. Yes, there's a black person running it. Yeah, um, you're showing black films. It's yeah. obvious. Why don't you just say the word black? Are you scared of using the word black um, mm. in case you get blacklisted? Da, da, da. There was all of that going on, but I was very conscious that by calling it urban, I was opening myself up to people. I and mean, I said it in my very first speech at Buff in '05 um, mm. at the ITV building on the South Bank that. Yeah. Um, if you feel marginalised, this is the place for you. You know, we mm. know that people feel marginalised in the industry day in, day out. So Buff will always be here for you to showcase your film. Um, and I guess the penny dropped in 2013 mm-hmm. when we showed a feature film called Traveller, which is based on the Traveller community. Uh, okay. and it was produced by David Essex who for mm. many people in this country is a uh, the Justin Bieber of the 1980s that's the best way I can describe David Essex <laughs> Justin Bieber 1980 he was everyone's heartthrob yeah. I didn't realise how much of a heartthrob he was until we showed the film at the Genesis Cinema 400 oh. people attended that premiere awesome people had flown in from Holland from wow. South America just to see David Essex. So in that moment, it's hitting all sorts of intersections. You know, you're not talking about black people, you're talking about Traveller um, was the name of the film and that was mm. the name of the community that it was speaking to. Mm. But the fact that it was David Essex fronting it meant that we were in that moment reaching out to a new audience. Mm. and. As a result, there was a new appreciation of what Buff actually meant um, as right. a festival, as a concept, and as a brand. So in nice. that year, you know, Buff really catapulted itself by showing non-black films, really. Um, not your typical black films, which at, at that time would have been the likes of Bullet Boy. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what's the other film I'm thinking of? Life and Lyrics. Um, another hood etc I mean what, what's interesting about what you're saying is that it's it shows that um, 
okay, it's it, in a way, in a way, right? It kind of proves something a friend of mine said. I had him on this episode. His name's Mark Walters. I had him on this episode a while back. And, I know and, Mark uh, very well. You know Mark? <laughs> right. Yeah, so, he won a Buff Award, actually. He won uh, Best Music Video in 2015 for I Am Who. I will, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember, I remember, I remember. He told me that. So yeah, yeah so Mark said something that is interested, and you know, it, it's it's been a bit of a controversy. Basically, his thing is, and it's a big question: is do we think we, as black people, if you create a, a company or a product specifically for black people, specifically, and that's it, that's all it is, just for black people, do you think it's sustainable enough? Now, with Buff, it's almost as if. Do you think if all you're doing is just catering only for black filmmakers, you'll be where you are now? Because right now it's from, like you said, from the very beginning, it's been an open. And could that even be the reason why most people are, have not been able to create that table because there's just not enough, enough sustain, sustaining power in the black community for our products or for our businesses or for our establishments. Um, I mean, you say that. I mean, the voice is still going. The voice mm. newspaper, albeit online, mm. um, and that's been going for forty years. Um, mm. All these TV channels that I mentioned, Ben, Ben's still going. Um, mm. OB went um, online as an app. Actually, went into film production as well um, with the Mirror Boy, um, which was interesting. Um, in terms of sustainability. You know, I started at Black Filmmaker Magazine, which yeah. then became a film festival and had... I mean, that's interesting because in many ways, when I started at BFM, I was there for two years, like, mm. working, but been mm. part of BFM for five, gone mm. to the festival, read the magazine. So I was literally the groupie, then became part of the furniture. Um, <laughs> that's a good analogy. Yeah. That's what it was. That, that's what yeah. it was with BFM. Um, mm. Complete love affair. Mm. Um, and then I guess there was one point working at BFM that I thought I was going to be there forever or I was going mm. to be Menelik's successor mm. because Menelik to this day is first and foremost a creative Sure, he definitely. himself would concede that he's not all about counting the he's money he's a businessman and... no, no, no. Mm. and that's not, that's, mm. that's not a bad thing per se but if mm. if your heart is in the storytelling, which it is with Menelik, then mm. that's where he should channel all his energies. Sure. So having got to know Menelik like that and seeing him day in, day out in the office, it occurred to me spiritually that I could literally succeed Menelik mm. and I could mm. take BFM to the next level. So imagine yeah. if I was running BFM in 2003, right the way up to now. Mm. In answer to your question... BFM could literally be one of the biggest black media organisations, not just mm. in the UK, but in the world, mm. in terms of what we had then and the potential. The number of filmmakers that we had coming through BFM at the time who were still doing big things right now, and the number of people that I worked with um, that are going on to do great things, um, Juanita, Rosenio, mm-hmm. um who's representing Leroy Logan, he's got her own agency, working with the Black Cultural Archives. Um, she, were, she was working for me at uh, BFM. Mm. Um, other people have gone on to 
do great things. Um, so had I stayed at BFM, I think BFM there would have been there wouldn't be a buff basically. So, Although so, I say that, yeah. I say that I, I may have. See, this is where it gets interesting. Mm. If I had stayed at BFM, I might have had that question with myself: mm. Shall I rebrand it? Mm. Mm. Shall I re- because BFM had its own reputation in that, and it's interesting what you raised with Mark in that. In the two years I was working on the festival, yeah, um, it was hard to get black people to come out to watch premieres. Interesting. Why do you think so? Hard. I am. Um, I guess the notion at the time was they weren't of a certain standard. You know, we're sport now in 2021 that we have HD, uh, 4K stereo sound. Oh, right, we didn't right, have right. that much uh, in 2001, 2002. So the quality of that content. So that left where you pay 15, 18, 19 pounds, which is yeah. what you pay to see COVID to go to the cinema. And this right. is before popcorn. So if you're telling someone you're going to watch a black film in Leicester Square, and mm. we had black proper films with all-star mm. casts. We mm. had films with Mekki Pfeiffer in it. Um, we had a film produced by Lennox Lewis, um, Shotters, um, mm. uh, Uninvited Guest with Mekki Pfeiffer, as I mentioned. We had some really big films. Uh, the biggest film we had was a cowboy western called uh, Gang of Roses. Now, was it a black film? It was a black film. Oh, it had I need to Bobby see that. Brown as the <laughs> sheriff. Bobby and Brown. Lisa Ray Are you serious? I need to watch that film. And we, we had premiere. We had the rights to premiere the film at BFM. Yeah. But this is this is where it kind of all changed because that for me was the moment that BFM could have gone nuclear, could have gone clear. So me being the curious animal that I still am was just trying to find ways to just kind of shake the table up a little yeah. and really get BFM kicking and screaming into the 21st century. And so mm. Gang of Roses was kind of that opportunity to say to Menlik, can we get a sponsor to get Bobby and Whitney over? And he vetoed it. Mm. And I couldn't believe it. Wow. I, I remember having conversations with the team at two in the morning thinking, we have to get Bobby and Whitney over. Why is it Manly going for this? And he said, BFM is not about the stars. It's about the films. It's about the themes. That's the most important things. These stars, no, 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 no. Interesting. There was a point to that. There was a point to that, but I'm thinking it's a business. You know, BFM, we need to try and get sponsorship. We need to try and get attention. We're the only one of its kind as well. We, it's not as if we have competition. So in many ways, we were resting on our laurels, but because I wasn't running BFM, I didn't own yeah, BFM. Yeah, yeah. There was only so much that I could do. So that experience, I took that experience to obviously formulating Buff, knowing full well with that experience that I would never put myself in a position where if I had an opportunity to have A-list talent or mm. to utilise the media outlets that I wouldn't do it. I would go over and above. Well, yeah, you know, even yeah. to this day, I still have that nature of relationship with media outlets, not begging them, but making them care about the festival and about what it represents. 
every year I'm hungry about buff. How do you kind of build on what you've done the year before? You know, for us, in 2017 with the festival, we were at the BT Tower. In yeah. 2018, we opened the festival with our own feature film. Yeah. In 2019, yeah. we honoured Noel Clark. Yeah. In 2020, we're on Apple. So, you know, with yeah. each passing year, you see how big Buff gets. And that's not withstanding the BAFTA recognition and the MBE, which we've not really talked about yet. But this is what's happened in the last five years. Yeah. And yeah. a lot of that, a lot of that is down to my wife, um, mm. who has supported my grind from day one. Yeah. And it's very important that you find people who just support you no matter what. But Definitely. also they bring something to the table that's going to enhance the value that you're already bringing. Like I said, there was only one black film festival at the time, but no one was adding real value to it. And and it, it's um, it's but but that's the funny thing, isn't it? It's like again back to the table thing. It's like you have you have an audience, right? A, a potential a potential audience, and then you create a table. But there are two things lacking, and it could be lack of a different reason. It could just be interest. The interest of the visionary is not there. Or, or, mm. or expertise and it, which in this case is just a business acumen to see mm. through on so many levels marketing strategy all of that so that's not really that's not the forefront of the desire of the visionaire and also the audience itself like is the audience even big enough to to because we mentioned Ben and OB and all that but are they are they as big as they need to be as you know, as, as, as establishments, are they, is that, is that the biggest they can ever be? Because these are not really huge um, organizations. Why why should that Mm. be, why should that be a question as Mm. to whether there's a ceiling to their potential? No, but that's the thing. There shouldn't be a ceiling. Like they, they shouldn't be, it should be as big as, for example, Tyler Perry, you and, and again, using buff as well. Like you've literally, been talking about how you've grown in lips and bounds. And if you look at Tyler Perry as well, how he's grown, like a few years ago, he had a smaller studio. Now he's got this huge base and only God knows what the next five years would be. So what we see for most black organization is this, the the growth, we can't really see it in lips and bounds. And it's not, and they're not that many, that's the thing, they're not that many black organizations, but even the ones we see, we don't see this lips and bounds. And is it because... Mm. Going back to what Mark said, is it because the black audience are they driving the 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 consumption, or is it that the business argument is just not there, it's not high enough, or or what is it? What is that formula that not all the black businesses are feeding from that very few have? You know, I think for me it's it's quite. I don't know. If, I, I don't think, know if you get I, what I'm I saying. Think, I think it's it. Because historically black people have been oppressed for so long, mm. more often than not, they just take what's put in front of them as if that's the gospel. Mm. Um, where the likes of Buff, Tyler Perry, other um, successful black creators and organizations stand out is that mm. attention to detail mm. um, and just doing the simple things brilliantly. Got you. I'm mm. just very narrow-minded and single-minded in many ways 
with Buff and its purpose. And obviously, when you have someone like Claire, uh, mm -hmm. who is my wife, yeah. but he's also got a great marketing brain mm -hmm. um, and has been very successful in other fields, uh, not just in film. So when you have that, you know, it's almost as if the last five years has uh, not been an accident, really. You know, yeah. we've just gone from strength to strength. In mm -hmm. the height of, you know, the pandemic, um, someone at Apple started following me on LinkedIn, mm -hmm. uh, which is like surreal. It's like, why would you be following me on LinkedIn? <laughs> um, but at that time, I'd not decided what to do with Buff uh, as okay. a festival still need two minds as to whether to play it out and hopefully get a cinema later in the year or mm. go virtual um i mean in many ways buff has always been pivoting okay you know with, with bt back in 2017 bt had its own platform bt tv store mm -hmm. and part of the sponsorship we had with bt in 2017 was after the festival that the films would end up on bt tv store sure so the prototype was already there for Buff Films after the festival to be mm. shown on a streaming service. Mm. So we're already ahead of the game, you know, but obviously for various reasons that never materialized. Okay. Um, but with Apple, um, I guess once I reached out to them to find out why they were following. Oh, wow. Interesting. <laughs> in that moment, I said, I need a home for the festival. Mm. Can you help? And they said yes. Um, nice. But unbeknown to me, when we then started our first proper in-depth dialogue, they already started doing their diligence and research on Buff. Nice. And what they realised was that Buff was the only organisation that they saw mm. that was really banging the drum for diversity. That was the end of part one. I hope you guys enjoyed that interview so far. Um, I think it's quite, Emmanuel said a lot, and I'm so grateful for him opening up his heart and soul to me in this interview. Part two is another blast. Like he just went so deep into his thoughts about so many things around his life and business. And I can't wait to share these things with you guys. Um, so there's an iconic filmmaker that Emmanuel kept referring to in this interview by the name Menelik Shabazz. Sadly, Menelik is no more with us, and um, he was a very prolific and iconic film producer and director. He was a man that inspired Black British cinema filmmakers. Um, anywhere you go in the Black film industry, even in the film industry here in England, and you say the word, you say the name Menelik, people would say, "Oh wow, you know the legend." So. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of people feel that he didn't give everything that he had. Um, so we he's a man surely missed. His visions will be missed. And if you've never heard of him, please Google him. Menelik Shabazz, amazing, amazing man, amazing filmmaker, and an amazing legacy. So on that note, I'm going to end this episode. Please, guys, tune in for part two for my conclusion with Emmanuel Nyamasigwe. You've been listening to The O. Oh.